I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio. We're backstage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we've got Steve Almond here and also the band Horse Feathers and this woman known as the Queen of Puppets, Georgina Haynes. You make the puppets that appear in movies like The Box Trolls. You're doing it the hard way, which is the theme of this show. Have you ever thought of just doing something totally different? Not at all. I love doing it the hard way. That is why people like myself get involved in puppet making for stop motion animation. It's all about the problem solving and the sense of achievement. You can control these puppets and make them do anything you want, really. Does that mean that real life is kind of a disappointment? (laughs) Because we do everything frame by frame, our puppets can do way more than a human's face can do. It can express more. So, yeah. We do have an amazingly symmetrical and non-cartoonish cast and staff. We don't look cool like the puppets and box trolls. Okay, I think I can just about deal with that. (laughs) We're going to start dealing with that right now when we get out there on stage and do this radio show. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Yes, it's Livewire Radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, with against football author Steve Allman. Like a puppet master, Georgina Haynes, and music from Horse Feathers. All that, plus comedy from our troupe, Party in the Front, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now the host of Livewire... The only man to scale El Capitan in a bespoke two-button suit carrying a tumbler of chivas, Luke Burbank. Thank you very much. We have a spectacular show in store for you. This hour, we are talking about doing things the hard way. And we have some guests who are doing things the hard way for one reason or another, including... A writer named Steve Allman, he's written a new book called Against Football, and it basically tells America that our national pastime and obsession, that is football, is not a great thing for us to be nationally obsessed over. And um, uh, This was a difficult book for me to read because Steve raises a lot of really good points, and because I am one of those people who's pretty obsessed with football. I, I grew up as a kid in Seattle, Washington, and just to take you into my world for a minute, I have not missed watching or listening to, at least, 
a regular season Seattle Seahawks game since 1982. Um, some of you are cheering, some of you are horrified. Um, that's a, both are reasonable responses. I was six years old. My love for the Seahawks has, has gone un, unchecked and unabated throughout my life. I interrupted my honeymoon in Italy to watch a Seahawks game at two in the morning local time. The marriage did not survive. My love for the Seahawks did. I think that the most challenging time for me, if I'm talking about the hard way when it comes to following this team, was when I was a kid and when the team would play on the East Coast. Because because of the time difference, uh, an East Coast game meant that it came onto the radio at 10.30 a.m. Seattle time, which was also exactly when my father was standing behind the pulpit delivering the sermon at the evangelical church that I grew up in that he was the pastor of. So I would have to do like an Ocean's Eleven caper to get out to the car. So first was getting the keys, okay? And so I would have to wait because they were in my mom's purse until a song where the adults were closing their eyes and raising their hands to heaven. So it was like, holy, holy, holy was a good one. Or as soon as, as the deer panteth for the water went up on the overhead, I was like, I'm in. So I would get the keys. Then I would have to get out of the sanctuary. That was actually a process that started on the ride to the church where I'd be complaining about my stomach hurting. So I'd look at my mom and she would give me the okay to head back to the bathroom to avoid a, an embarrassing incident. Then I would sneak out the back door of the church, I would climb over a fence, and then I would run ducking underneath the windows of the sanctuary and go back to the Dodge Dart and listen to my game. And it was totally blissful. I would just scrunch down in the vinyl seats of this Dodge Dart and I would listen to the AM radio crackle and, and imagine this world of football that was going on. And when they lost, which was most of the time in those days, I would like punch the seat and I would cry a little bit. And then I would sneak back into the kitchen of the church and I would drink all of the leftover communion grape juice to just like make myself feel better, which would be foreshadowing for my adult life, by the way, but it was more fermented. Um, but the crazy thing is that now I don't have to do this the hard way because I am an adult. I don't have to go to church on a Sunday morning if I don't want to. Uh, I have a ludicrously large television at my house like many of us do and I can watch the game anytime I want. I have been to these games. I was at a Super Bowl that they played in. I have been on the sidelines of some of these games where they've had spectacular success and the most excited I think I've ever been experiencing football was in that Dodge Dart with my face just like pressed against the vinyl, you know, just like listening and dreaming. And so in a few minutes, Steve Allman is going to come out here and make the case why my childhood beautiful dreams are built on bullshit and human suffering. And I look forward to seeing how he pulls that off. Um, Speaking of people who do things the hard way, Georgina Haynes has been working in the rarefied world of stop-motion animation for over 20 years now. If you've enjoyed seeing the intricate and badass puppets in movies like Mars Attacks, The Corpse Bride, and now Coraline and Paranorman, 
then you know Georgina's work. The latest film that she's acted as the puppet master on was Laika's The Box Trolls. Please welcome Georgina Haynes to Livewire. Hi there, Georgina. Hi. Um, you've brought out some, uh, some little characters here from, from the box trolls. I'm, I'm looking at these figures, the tallest one, the, the bad guy Archibald is, is like maybe 15 inches tall or, or something like that. Are these things that are used in a movie or are these just reminders for you of, of what the characters look like so you don't no, mess no. it up? These are the stars of the show. So all of these are stop motion puppets. So the animators, we have a crew of animators, and you'll see here, these puppets are articulated. So you're moving the yeah. arms of the bad guy and just <laughs> stopping them in different positions, and this is how you made this movie? This is the hard way of how we made this movie. That <laughs> seems like the incredibly hard way. <laughs> just Let's actually start at the beginning here. How did what? you get into this? Um, I got into it by being a dysfunctional sort of, um, I suppose, dysfunctional academic. I was an academic. I was good at art. Um, my mum, when I was a little kid, poured a big pile of fabrics in the middle of the floor and said, you're never going to be bored. Make something. So I started making things, and then my dad was like, oh, my God, she's covered the whole house with fabrics and rude the day my mum ever said that. I think that most people, when they hear puppets, they immediately think hand up oh, the undercarriage the and they of were the a first thing. puppets that I made. <laughs> that, those were the kinds of puppets you made? Because yeah. the kind that you use for a movie like Box Trolls that I'm looking at right now, yeah. they're not, you don't put your hand in them, they don't have strings attached, they're just very poseable. What was the first puppet you actually made? The first puppet I actually made was an... Oh, mm -hmm. is, there a, is there a special <laughs> puppet term for that? Um, like if I was going to make a puppet, it was going to be the butthole kind. I was supposed to be a string. I assume it's yeah. not that, right? Um, I, knew, I knew them as Henson-style puppets. Henson-style yeah, puppets. Them, and it was one that I operated the mouth with my hand, and, you know, I had rods what, on the what hand. What kind of... What, what was it? It was a strange creature. It, I made it out of chamois leather and clip foam, and it had ping-pong balls for eyes, which I painted. You know, it's amazing what, what you do at art college. And with, <laughs> and with drugs. Um, yeah. What was its name? It didn't really have a name. There were, there was, it was sort of a character that came out of the ground um, in some weird time machine that was surrounded by stone circles. It was very hippie. <laughs> so then did you do a voice for it? I mean, have you ever done puppets where you're... Being no. the voice of the puppet. And by the way, I'm available for your next movie okay, if you okay. need me, because that was, I think we can all agree, pretty amazing. <laughs> I have never made one of those puppets, no. And you no. don't, you've never done I've the never voices. Done the, I've never done the voices, no, no. So then how do you end up working for Leica and, and sort of recognized as the, the puppet queen? Like, how did you <laughs> become so accomplished in this field? What is it about the puppets you're making? So I got into stop-motion puppet making because I went to college in Manchester, and there was a studio down the road called Cosgrove Hall that made Wind in the Willows. It went on to make 
uh, Noddy, the t a lot of kids' TV shows, and they introduced me to stop-motion puppet making, which I knew nothing about until I went there. And I sort of got an apprenticeship there, and we got this sort of infamous phone call one year, and it was Tim Burton's office in New York. We're working on this movie. It's called Mars Attacks. We want it to be homage to the old 50s stop-motion live-action films. Um, and that was the sort of the big break that we had in Hollywood. We were this little company in Manchester, England. Um, and that sort of put us on the map. Um, that eventually went to computer animation, but we made 65 puppets, of which I made about 60 of them, the internal skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to uh, let people know that you're listening to Livewire Radio. We're talking to Georgina Haynes. She's with the company Leica. They have made uh, a number of films. And we've just been throwing the term stop action puppetry around, but I guess in case somebody doesn't know, this is what exactly when you say stop action? Well, stop motion, stop Excuse action, it's, it's, it's all the same. It is where a puppet is moved frame by frame. 24 frames make one second of film. So on a good week, an animator will get one to two good seconds of animation. <laughs> What's the suicide rate? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I don't want to, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. At the very end of the box trolls, there is a moment which I feel like your union must have pushed for, where we see superimposed, it's sort of after the credits or kind of towards the end of the credits, uh, one of the uh, puppeteers actually doing the posing of making these characters move. And it is mind-bending how much time it takes to just yeah. get even a second of this footage. And, you know, I could never be an animator. I st I'm a puppet maker. And even now, I'm a supervisor of an amazing team of puppet makers at Leica. You know, we have 65 artists and craftspeople from all over Portland, all over Oregon. We bring them in from the East Coast, the West Coast and strange people like me with an English accent. <laughs> All over the world, people with miniature skills. So, um, yes, yeah, so as I say, I don't move the puppets, right. but we make them. Why is it worth doing the hard way? It's such a special kind of filmmaking. It's an age-old filmmaking technique. And I think the most amazing thing about seeing a stop-motion film, it's a little bit like looking through a viewmaster, it's a real three-dimensional object, and it's in real space. And I think you can, you can tell that. And the detail that my team, myself, puts into these puppets, you see it. You see it's projected on the big screen, and it's all real. It's tangible, it's real, and it's believable. There's such an interesting sort of aesthetic to this film. The, <laughs> the way that the characters are rendered... Um, just tells you, particularly, I watched this with my little nephew here in Portland, and um, this is a kid who hasn't been to the movies very often. In fact, he loves Star Wars, but he's never actually been allowed to see Star Wars, so he's made up a parallel <laughs> Star Wars that exists, because he knows a thing called Star Wars exists. Um, so this was the second movie he'd ever seen, and he was completely riveted, and part of it, to me, seemed to be the way these characters physically sort of appeared. Do you make a decision at the beginning of the film, like... 
that there's going to be a, just, I don't understand how you create a consistent look for everything, because they all seem random, but they kind of work together. Yeah, so we have art direction, you know, when a film is, when, when a script is written, we get an initial team of people together who are the key creatives, and we all work together to decide what the look of that movie is going to be, and I'll go off to the puppet department and make sure that the puppets are consistent with that look, the department that makes all the faces, they will do the same. The art department that does all the sets and models that are in the movie, they're all getting their information from one central sort of pool, an art director, a production designer. So those those decisions are made. We knew that Box Trolls was going to be set in this fantasy Dickensian world, so it was perfect for stop motion because it's detailed. Everything's about detail in that sort of time period. Is this something that do you think they'll ever be able to build a computer program that could do it seamlessly? You know, no, because that's the problem with computer programs. The seamless computer program can never replicate an organic part. And, and maybe one day it will, but I think what's incredible about these handmade pieces and the reason people are drawn to it is the mistakes they give them the character. You know, just like a human being, we're not symmetrical. Our puppets aren't symmetrical. So it Far has... from it. We're talking about... <laughs> Especially this guy. Snatcher there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Georgina Haynes, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you. That was Leica puppet designer Georgina Haynes. You are listening to Livewire Radio from PRI, recorded in Portland, Oregon, the city of roses, bridges, and a mild sense of self-satisfaction. <laughs> you really nailed that promo, Burbank. There it is right there. We will be right back. The Livewire podcast is sponsored by Ergo Depot, letting you know you don't have to feel guilty for sitting all day, largely because you don't have to sit all day. Studies show that getting up and moving around for even a few minutes every hour makes a huge difference for your spine and cardiovascular health. Also, if you're away from your computer screen, it's significantly harder to Facebook stalk your ex. So that's kind of a win-win. To find furniture that improves your back health and your psychological health, visit ErgoDepot.com. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Just before the break, we were talking to Georgina Haynes, one of the chief puppet fabricators over at Leica. They made the movie The Box Trolls. It's known as a studio that brings us kids' movies with a darkly humorous bent. And so we here at Live Wire have taken some of our favorite children's books and given them a slightly darker tinge in the hopes that a studio like maybe Leica, I don't know, could maybe turn them into stop-motion animation gold. Gold like this. This fall, Charlie thought his golden ticket just got him a tour of a candy empire. But Mr. Wonka has a big surprise in store. A big surprise. Find out more in our adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. It's all yours, Charlie. Everything you see here. I needed somebody to take over my factory, and, well, you're the right one. The whole thing? 
You're just gonna give me a chocolate factory? Grandpa's gonna be so happy. Yes, you get all of it, Charlie, including the debt from the leverage buyout. Oh, yes, and OSHA's on our backs about all those accidents we had. But the candy... And don't even get me started on our labor problems, Charlie. I'm sorry, I mean your labor problems now. The Oompa Loompas are unionizing, you know. Good luck trying to find a skilled orange dwarf willing to cross a picket line. You know, maybe I don't want to own a chocolate factory. Golden tickets are legally binding. A clever spider saves the life of one particularly charming pig through the power of the written word in her web. But is it enough in our adaptation of Charlotte's Web? Charlotte, the farmer isn't going to kill and eat me? Oh, that's really great. You deserve it. You are some pig. I can't thank you enough for saving me, Charlotte. Now... What shall we do to help the 112 million other pigs killed in the U.S. each year? Well, I, I thought that... And that's just in the United States. Worldwide, there's over 100 million metric tons of pork consumed each year. That's a lot of pigs. Yes, but remember when we won that state fair? And many pigs live in horrid conditions, Charlotte. Free pig. Anybody want a free pig? It's succulent. In our version of Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown, the moon talks back to the bunny. Goodnight, hairbrush and bowl of mush. Goodnight, house. Goodnight, mouse. Goodnight, room. Goodnight, moon. Goodnight. I see what you're doing down there. There. What, um, who said that? I am the devil moon. And I see everything you do. This is scary. What is happening? I will eat the day. And you will experience a hundred years of darkness. So, uh, yeah. Those are our slightly darker children's book adaptations. Um, Laika, you know our number. Uh, we'll be waiting. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, maintaining relationships with local growers to offer customers organic produce free of pesticides. Whole Foods Market, keeping you from growing a third ear. Because ears are weird. And two is really probably more than enough. More information at eataspromised.com. Two years ago, Justin Ringle, the lead singer of Horse Feathers, thought he was done with music until he realized that maybe it should just be a little more fun. He'd always had fans say, thank you for your music. It really helped me through my divorce. Justin wanted to make music that would make people say, thanks for your music. It really helped me get super drunk and laid. So that's what their latest record, So It Is With Us, tries to do. Let's see if it worked. Please welcome Horse Feathers here to Livewire.
even thoughts behind I was gone before I'd go The dirtiest deeds Justified merely by the name Seldom lay down alone Lovers rarely sleep They are bound to the phone Yet on a day Plain and mild With a smile Violently wild We are just bigger Feathers 
right here on LimeWire Radio. Wow, that was great. Their new record is So It Is With Us. You are listening to LiveWire Radio. From PRI, five-time winner of our Fantasy Football League, we are just killing the other shows in our league. It's almost like <laughs> calling all pets in the splendid table aren't even trying anymore. I don't see why you don't just do yourself a favor and confess. You had a motive, the gardener saw you go in, and we've got your prints all over the murder weapon. Just tell us what happened, and maybe the DA will go easy on you. Get off of it, Detective Warren. You got nothing. Last chance, Grasso. You can do this the easy way or the hard way. It's up to you. The hard way. Okay, fine. What's 5,852 divided by 154? Uh, 38. Name all of the Jackson Five. Okay, there's uh, Tito and Jermaine, Jackie, Marlin, right? And, of course, little Michael. All right, get up. Okay. Get up, jump this rope. What? Do it. Uh, okay. Jeez. Oh, yeah, name three ancient Egyptian pharaohs. Uh, there's King Tut, uh, Hatshepsut, and uh, uh, Ramses. Ramses one or two? Uh, either. Now, crisscross applesauce. Oh, God, okay. Uh... Now, where were you the night of the 31st? Uh, I watched a movie. Which movie? I don't remember. Yeah, right. Now, double Dutch. With one person? All right, I'm coming in, okay? Oh, jeez. <laughs> All right, now, now touch your tongue to your nose. Uh, uh, Convert 50 kilometers to feet. Oh, uh, jeez, pass. You scum, you know that? Uh, How many feet are there in a kilometer? There's 3,300. Great, now multiply 3,300 by 30, and what do you get? Uh, I can't, you're stressing me out. Multiply it. Uh, maybe 165,000 feet. You never at the movie. Yes, I was. You went over to Daryl's house to confront him about the money. Oh, no. Now get into a triangle pose. Oh, come on. Extend I your just... torso, Grasso. My torso? Stretch and breathe. Uh, oh. All right, now what is the key to making good pancakes? Not over mixing the dough. You pulled out a gun, and you shot it. It was an accident. What happened? He pulled a gun, we wrestled for it, it went off. I didn't mean to. Why didn't you go to the police right away? I panicked. Yeah, right. Now recite the metamorphosis. Oh, God. Uh, of bodies changed to various forms, I sing. In Latin! <sighs> I want a lawyer. That's Andrew Harris and Sean McGrath. Author Steve Allman has written some controversial stuff about candy, sex, and politics. He's even gone toe-to-toe with Sean Hannity on Fox News. But his latest book might be his most controversial yet. In Against Football, One Man's Reluctant Manifesto, Allman examines his love for what he calls an astonishingly brutal sport and how strange it is that a sport that causes brain damage could become such a huge moneymaker for universities. Where we're told brains come in handy... Although, as a mass communications major at a state school, I cannot personally testify to that. <laughs> anyway, please welcome Steve Allman to Livewire. All right, right off the top, I need your football bona fides. Because I, the people that I hang out with, maybe not this crowd of public radio types, but the people I hang out with are going to hear that you wrote a book decrying football's uh, barbarism, and they're going to think you're some kale-eating guy who never liked football. So prove it that you actually <laughs> okay. know from what you're writing about. Well, let's see. I think the 
probably the most horrifying thing I could say is that uh, I've thought about a particular play, which is a play called the Tuck Rule play that football fans will recognize. Tom when, Brady. Correct. Uh, I Did I win? Yes. <laughs> So my favorite team, the Oakland Raiders, lost in some tediously heartbreaking fashion that none of you public radio listening people care about. But I've thought about that play probably about 10 times more than the birth of any of my children. So. You pass. Proceed with the interview, Alman. <laughs> Why do you think we are, as a nation, so obsessed with football? Well, I think it's actually... Uh, a remarkably beautiful, intricate game. I know it's profoundly violent, but that's also in the American groundwater. We are the country that regenerates ourselves through violence, fundamentally. And I think it's also strategically dense, and it's also beautiful. People want to see greatness. They want to see people, athletes, making miracles with their bodies. Barry Sanders makes just the right cut at just the right moment, and out of utter chaos, he summons courage and poise, and he breaks into the open field, and it's absolutely thrilling. That's what we would all wish to do. It, it connects us to the intuitive pleasures of childhood, running, leaping, jumping, getting concussed. <laughs> I'm wondering how the sales of the book are, because you're writing something that essentially tells this nation that the thing it loves the most is right. not good for it. Yeah. It's like, hey, bacon lovers, take a trip to the slaughterhouse with me. Yeah. Yeah. Or listen to our last sketch about pigs. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know I'm getting a lot of hate mail. Oh, really? It's always a good thing. Oh, yeah. Do you have any? Could you share yeah. it with us? Yeah. I, oh, well, sure, since you ask. Uh, and this is like just a tiny sampling. OMG, I am a progressive on social issues, but dude, you're the biggest f***ing on the face of the earth. I was pretty drunk when I uh, yeah. wrote that. <laughs> then you probably don't remember adding this little P.S. Change your tampon, you woman. <laughs> and I did. I read an article you wrote about... This is a new writer, Luke's brother. Yeah. I read an article you wrote about football, and I couldn't help but think of a slutty girl I knew growing up. I thought she had the biggest vagina I'd ever seen before. Until now, congrats, dude, you have a bigger one. <laughs> Why do libs have to ruin everything we do for fun or take our minds off of the world? I don't even like the Redskins, but if that kind of stuff offends the large vagina crowd, I am a fan now. What's amazing to me is that people have wasted so much money on gender reassignment surgery when all you exactly. need to do is apparently make a reasonable argument about football and it's just... That's right. It just it's, takes care of everything. Exactly. It's like, it's, it's uh, genital revocation. That's, yeah. exa that's the punishment. And I've actually thought about these letters a disturbing amount as the son of two psychoanalysts. And it's like, I... I get the part where they're sort of saying, well, you're so feminine that you have a large vagina. I can kind of do that math. But it's also fascinating that the large vagina speaks to some kind of fear of size inadequacy. Mm. It's like my questioning football actually causes them to feel that their pieces are too small. Are you, um... Not that I'm saying that about you, Luke. No, 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 I don't. <laughs> Don't take it that way. We have a lot of Microphallus fans in the audience tonight at the Alberta Rose. Um, we're talking to Steve Allman. His book is Against Football. I love football. the stop action. No, never mind. <laughs> so. 
Okay, let's get to the, the crux of, of what the book is actually about, because we've been talking about the reaction to the book. Right. If, let's just say you and I are in a Buffalo Wild Wings, because it's like after a nuclear holocaust and it's the only restaurant, <laughs> but for some reason they're also still playing football. Oh, that makes total sense to me. (laughs) So we're in a Buffalo Wild Wings in some Beckett play, and we're uh, watching a game, and and you're making the the pitch to me as to why this is actually bad for us as a a nation. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, uh, the central thing I can say is that uh, it's extraordinarily pleasurable, and it itches a lot of American scratches. So there's no debate that's an incredible form of entertainment. But as a moral undertaking, it's just absolutely crazy and out of sync with our values when we don't look at the game. So the NFL recently admitted that nearly a third of their players are going to get brain damage. There's no other workplace in which we would find that close to acceptable, not even the military, where we could say at least they're defending the homeland. What football is is providing us a form of entertainment that's become so brutal that the guys who play it a third of them are going to wind up with brain damage. Player health is one thing. The way in which it's corrupted our educational system is just crazy. You know, it causes diminished brain function, but we play it in high schools. If there was a gas leak in a high school that caused diminished brain function in the students, how quickly would everybody descend on that school and shut it down and quarantine it? It would be a national scandal. But if it's the context of football, we say, hey, let's build a stadium, let's put up lights, let's sell popcorn and... You write about the, the, the brain damage and the sort of specter of dementia for a lot of these players right. in the book, and you write about it through a personal experience that you had, with right. a, a brush with this kind of thing. Would you, would you mind reading that? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's sort of, I think we all kind of know in the abstract that these players are dealing with dementia, uh, but I actually, a couple of years ago, my mother experienced an acute dementia, so I'll read a little bit about that. It's just at the end of the book. By the time I arrived, my mother's condition had deteriorated. She swung between benign confusion and extreme disorientation. Often she had no idea where she was and virtually no short-term memory. At one point, she asked where her mother had gone. She insisted she was in the midst of an awful dream and stared in bewilderment at the IVs taped to her arms. Her face was deeply bruised from the fall. She could not feed herself. When doctors asked her basic questions, do you know what year it is? Dr. Almond. She looked at them imploringly. A nice young doctor sat my dad and me on a bench and told us that the official diagnosis, by which he really meant his best guess, was a progressive dementia that had been masked for years. In the space of a week, she had gone from a high-functioning professional to an invalid who needed around-the-clock monitoring. One night, as I tried to explain to her for perhaps the tenth time that she could not yet go home, she looked at me in a panic. Something terrible is happening to me, she said, and began to weep inconsolably. It was a moment of appalling lucidity. She could see, if only for a few drowning seconds, the true nature of her circumstance. The next morning, I brought her a picture of her grandson, Judah. I thought it might jog her memory or at least cheer her up. She looked at the photo and began sobbing again. What's the matter, I said. I'm going to miss everyone, she said. The doctors talk about the brain as a mystery. What I realized in those sorrowful days is how holy the brain is. It is a temple that houses our fragile selfhood. We think, therefore we are. But if we cannot think, no matter how vigorous the body, we vanish. Um, And that, I think it's 
until that, until that moment, I was okay with the bad deal of eating the bacon, but not, you know, knowing that, that, that football was predicated on our consumption of this violence that results in dementia for many of the players. And I think the two synapses in my brain finally connected when it was, in, when it was my mom. Uh, we're talking to Steve Allman. He was reading from his new book, Against Football. This is Live Wire Radio. Um, it, it sounds like, according to the book, uh, fortunately, that your mother actually right. um, came out of that. Yeah, it was a temporary dementia. But, of course, at the time, we had no idea. We thought, okay, this is what it's going to be. What, what about the, the argument that you know, people know what they're doing when they play football? And yeah. uh, you know, the, the ones who make it to the NFL, which is, of course, a select few, are... Right are handsomely rewarded, and there are people... I watch this show on HBO called Hard Knocks, which is, I have to say, amazing uh, sort of film work, if you will, the way they construct the narratives and all this, and it's really about people trying to get on these teams. Right. I mean, aren't, isn't it sort of, uh, you know, an open secret that this is a dangerous thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, the, the book is not trying to question why a 22-year-old kid whose entire identity is defined around becoming a football player would choose to disregard the risks to his health and become a football player. What it is questioning is our decision as fans to consume the game, and that is actually what makes the, these guys so well-paid and so heroic. We actually built the NFL. We built football, the football industrial complex, and that's the moral decision that I'm trying to interrogate. What, what are uh, Sundays like for you now? Because you were a big football fan, <laughs> yeah. and, and now you're a, you know, a conscientious objector of sorts. You just walk down like a street with newspapers just blowing along sure. with your hands in your pocket, yeah. looking at people My raising hot out. wings right. to their mouth. And <laughs> then you just end up in the painting Nighthawks yeah. just by yourself. You know, it's exactly like that, except there are three screaming children also ah, in that diner. So, I see. Yeah. So that actually helps keep your mind off it. Really, though, I mean, what does it look like uh, as a person who used to be really into football but now isn't or at least has realized yeah. you don't want to be part of the fan culture? Yeah, well, I mean, I miss it. I miss both watching the games themselves because they are the most, to me, they're the most exciting, dramatic, dramatically satisfying sport we have. But I also miss just the connection to especially the world of men, but just other fans. Like, America's a lonely country, and we're always looking for the big unifying stories that bring us together. And men especially are looking to purchase the right to be in some way or another connected and intimate with one another, and that's partly what football fandom is about. So my neighbor, Sean, still loves the game, and I don't get to go and watch the game. And I think, it's, I think now football is a place of refuge. It's a place that you go to escape the moral complexities and disappointments of the adult world. It's a place before guilt and before shame. What's your hope for, for turning this around? It's a big nation full of people, right. most of whom now seem increasingly obsessed with football. You're, you're one guy who wrote one book. Yeah, right. So what am I going to do about it? Well, the, the book is not an effort to like start a boycott or a ban. I'm totally uninterested in that. The book is a, an effort to see football for what it truly is, that is, a couple chapters are about how amazing it is and pleasurable to watch and how it connects us to our fathers and whatever, to each other in some ways, but also to see the rest of it. It's hard for Americans to morally interrogate their pleasures. But my goal is only to have people be in the same state of, I guess, anxiety yeah. and struggle that These I was These people live there, right. so that's the good news. <laughs> well, now they have something When it comes new. to self-doubt, right. we really cornered the market in public right. radio. <laughs> good. That's my demo. 
But that's, that's the only goal. And then people get to make up their own minds, ultimately. It, but what we do so often is just use a bunch of excuses mm -hmm. to avoid really grappling with the fact that we're consuming this brutal game that is damaging, I think, to the national soul. Cities are being extorted. Taxpayers are paying for a bunch of stadiums when they should be paying for schools. I mean, there's basic stuff that none of us agree with. Yeah. I will definitely admit that if you replaced NFL football with modern country music, and then you described to me all the things that happened because of modern country music, right. like cities being held hostage to build these facilities and right. people getting hurt, I would say, we have to stop modern country right. music right. just because I love the NFL stuff. We, we, we do need to wrap this up, but before we do, Steve, uh, just I, I, I was hoping you could read the passage from your book where... You tried to explain this beloved national obsession right. in America to a non-American and, and maybe started to get a little bit of a sense for how cuckoo some of this stuff is, really. Yeah. Um, all right. I once made the mistake of watching a football game with an Italian woman who was studying medieval gender roles and with whom, rather unimaginatively, I hoped to have sex. It was the sort of mistake one makes in one's 20s before one has developed a proper appreciation for the virtues of compartmentalization. <laughs> they are spending most times hugging, Elena observed. Those are blocks, I said. Then at the end, they make a big pile on the ground and grind each other. <laughs> There's no grinding. <laughs> then they spank the others on the behind. It's a gay ritual. I don't think so, I said. But look, before each time, the skinny one, the sex leader, the quarterback. He makes all the big boys bend over, then he chooses his favorite. And comes up behind the lucky one and makes a pantomime of sodomy. No, I said. No, no, no. That's the snap. It's how the play starts. And the quarterback gets the ball from one guy, the center. It's not a choice. He can't just come up to, like, the tight end. <laughs> Elena looked at me for several complicated European seconds. The what? You told her, Steve Allman. <laughs> Steve Allman, ladies and gentlemen, right here on LiveWire. That's Steve Almond. His new book is Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. Livewire is brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, whose commitment to sourcing and serving local seasonal produce that, who knows, could lead to a blueberry burrito someday. <laughs> Not that you have to eat it. We're just saying it could happen, possibly. It all could happen. And more information is available over at laughingplanetcafe.com. All right, we've had uh, quite an hour. We've learned, <laughs> I feel a lot about the hard way. Jason Rouse, Livewire announcer, what have you hey. learned in the last hour about the hard way? Well, I, in thinking about Georgina Haynes and her uh, choice to work in the rarefied uh, art form of stop motion animation, I thought, in what art form do I work? And it's procrastination. And <laughs> It's not as simple as you may think because a lot goes into that. You have to know what Subway sandwiches will be open at 2 a.m. on a Tuesday 
and how many episodes of Parks and Rec are in your Netflix queue at any one time. You have to know all these things in order to not work. All right. That's it. That's it. Okay. I, uh, I didn't know a lot about doing puppetry the hard way until we had Georgina Haynes out here. Yeah. Now I know that if you want your kid to grow up to be a successful uh, puppet queen, dump a bunch of shit on the floor Absolutely. and just tell her, make something. Absolutely. And that puppets have an undercarriage. Right? Yeah. Didn't know that either. Didn't want to know that. <laughs> you in the audience, it sounds like. I was, yeah. All right. Let's get Horse Feathers back out here. Another round of applause, please, one more time on Livewire. A thousand miles an hour Every clock was tired Cause when the sun is young It's nights, smoking tongues It's calling out our names And drawing miles to flames All its nouns we'd sing It's verbs, but it's sting It's less sweet, your hand in mine for a time A kiss that's not refused I promised it wasn't true Wasn't true
that was Horse Feathers. And that's our show. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Our thanks to our guests, Georgina Haynes, Steve Almond, and Horse Feathers. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the co-creator and executive producer of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and a producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band along with Jonathan Newsom and musical director Ralph Huntley. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team along with Alex Falcone and me. Our performers are Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by Neil Blake. Stage management by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Work for Art, the Oregon Community Foundation, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, and listeners like you find people. For more information about the show or becoming a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear LiveWire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and Make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 